לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamit in Highland Park, New Jersey, the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Chiyad. Joining me, my good friends, back from Israel, fresh still on Chiyad, like Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski and Rabbi Barry Chesler. We're recording this. This is about the latest we've ever recorded a Parsha Talk in the week. It's Friday afternoon, Arab Shabbat, but we know that our devoted three listeners and viewers want to see more Parsha Talk. It's like more cowbell. How, how much more Parsha Talk can you have in your lives? Actually, no, we, we have, we have, we have a great following. We have a great following. In fact, many people in my show at least have been saying, we miss you, we miss you, you know, and so we are delighted to be with you on Parsha Nachremot. I would be remiss if I didn't say it's a an amazing Parsha. It is an amazing Parsha. Wait, what, is, what is more cowbell? What is that? <laughs> more cowbell from the Saturday Night Live skit. <laughs> you know, with the Christopher Walken, right? More cow. I'm, I'm just... <laughs> is this, I got a now fever. there's a voice of normal. I got a fever for more cowbell. Okay. So, this is Akremot. We are familiar with this Parsha because we read it every Yom Kippur for reasons which will become obvious in a moment. I want to start off by by just reflecting on what I think is just the, the personal lives of the leaders of, of, of our nation. Moshe, Aaron, Miriam is in the background. She's not here. She doesn't play a supportive role in the political and ecclesiastical life of the people here. But... Moses as the leader and Aaron as the high priest. The, the text begins, after the death of his two sons. So we don't know when this set of rules is being issued, but it is after the death of the two sons. It's after this crisis, after a cataclysmic tragedy, where on the the occasion of the consecration of the tabernacle, when the tabernacle was being sanctified and the altar was being, you know, consecrated, the two sons of Aaron, Nadav and Aviu, came in with an Esh Zara. Uh, however we want to interpret it, they, they stepped over the boundary and were incinerated because of that. And, you know, as even though it's the, the, the violation was a technical violation of the rules of of the sanctuary it still it still had to affect Aaron personally and and we can't get over reading these rules without thinking that there are human beings behind this story and so I think reading very closely on these two verses uh, that begin this Parsha we have God speaking to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron and then it says again God speaks to Moses again and then says tell your brother tell Aaron your brother so I want to I want to propose that there's the the doubling here, which of course you know scholars can relate to, as you know there may be two versions and two two recensions and all that, but there's a there's an interpretation that is begging at us, which is that 
coming to terms with the with the calamity is actually very difficult. And that what what is necessary here is the balancing of the public role and the private grief. And that in in issuing these rules, what we are learning here is that despite the private lives of the two leaders, especially Aaron, who is the bereaved father, the people need to go on. And and that's your your lot in life as a as the as the leader. And I want you to reflect on that. And Barry, I want you to, you know, maybe make the American parallel and, and the constitutional parallel for us. So when we were discussing before the show, the example that came up from American history was the assassination of John Kennedy on November 22nd, 1963. And at the airport, President Johnson um, took the oath of office in the presence of the first lady, the, the former past first lady, uh, Jackie Kennedy, later to become Jackie Kennedy Onassis, wearing a dress that was blood and brain spattered from her husband. And, you know, we were talking that when she goes back to Washington, in a sense, she has no house to go back to because she's no longer the wife of the president. And I, it was a striking moment. I still have a vivid memory, I don't know, of the actual event, but certainly of the picture of that somber look on President Johnson, who now has the weight of the world on his shoulders. There was um, the, the photograph was taken in Air Force One. That that was the uh, right before they got, they got on. And they yeah. just they grabbed some local judge to do this. I think yeah. they were in the air. They were in the air when when they I were standing. He was standing though when he took the oath. So yeah. I don't. I, okay. All right. But what so you're saying is very important because what you're saying is that the Constitution overrides. The personal grief and of course you know on subsequent days in november of 63 uh they they there were national days of mourning and 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 all of the the rituals the national rituals of, that were were necessary uh to go through this this great calamity but constitutionally the government had to function and the president had, had the legal authority at the time right and the other thing you know the other incident that comes to mind in a different vein was um July 4th, 1976, which was the 250th anniversary of the United States, 200th, excuse me, but also the day of Entebbe yeah. when uh, Yoni uh, Netanyahu was killed in battle and his brother, Benjamin, had to go tell their father. Yeah. And, you know, there's a great moment and there was a member of my congregation at the time who was happened to be at the hotel that day and has a beautiful picture the moment that the news was announced in Israel of the Kotel, um, a great day for Israel, but a tragedy for the Netanyahu family. You know, right. and again, the difference between the personal and the national. But I, you know, I was struck by something you said earlier, Elliot, that I think uh, bears on what we have to say here. And you talked about a pause between the two verses, and yeah. it seems that perhaps the pause is because God says something to Moses, and Moses now has to think about how he's going to tell it to Aaron. And, and no, he can't just he can't just relay it like we normally have, but rather there is, you know, there's something going on here that Moses absolutely. has to address himself. And I would only I would emphasize that in the second verse, it's Daber ala Aaron achicha, speak to Aaron your brother. And and I did a I was preparing uh, some some material on this, and uh, there are something like uh, three hundred. Uh, occurrences of of 
Aaron in, in the Torah, 11 are um, uh, Aaron Achicha. And, and it would be interesting to kind of do that, you know, that exercise, which is the concordance exercise, you know, collect all these, these places where it's Aaron Achicha. And I mean, my sermon on this would be, you know, at, at what point does he need to, to refer to uh, Aaron as his brother? What's the, what's the, necess- the, the necessity of the intimacy of the brotherly sibling relationship? And a couple of those leap up at us and, and they're easy to access, which is that, you know, when, when Moses comes back from his exile, Aaron Achicha is going to greet, is going to see you. And when Moses is dispatched to Pharaoh, it's Aaron Achicha is going to speak for you. And that occurs a couple of times. And then the, the last time when it's Aaron Achicha, I mean, I don't have to make you, you know, suspense here, but it's, well, where do you think it is? You take, take the your brother, take Aaron Achicha, and, and basically take off his, his vestments. And, and, you know, it's like, duh, you know, why wouldn't the text have said Aaron Achicha? He's not, he's, not, he's not there only as the, you know, the, the head priest. He's there as your brother. And so here I want to say, you know, almost homiletically, but almost as a shot, you know, look, when you talk to him, remember that he had this tragedy. Remember that he lost two of his sons right now. And remember that you're his brother and that you're not just Moses, like the, the big shot. Moses, the leader. Remember that you're also the brother. And so I, I find it fascinating, you know, we're, we're rabbis, we're leaders, you know, and we're constantly engaged in, in this, this uh, dynamic of the public and the private. And, um, you know, it, it's certainly nowhere near in terms of magnitude as, you know, in, 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 in terms of political leadership. But these, these elements are, are always present for us. And, um, and the boundaries are necessary. And, and when you realize that you you know there there is a a necessity to function for the community, then certain things that are you know personal are are subordinated to that. I don't know if you have a reaction to that. Maybe. I would say I mean I have a reaction to something else. So if, yeah. if Barry wants to speak about that, so another example came to mind. Apparently, the Munich massacre happened around the time that Golda Meir was sitting shiva for a sibling. And there was some controversy in Israel about how she was behaving because the nation needed her and she had this private moment of grief. Yeah. And so, you know, I I think part of the message for us is we have to remember that our leaders are human beings. Yes. And we tend to lose sight of that both for good and for bad. And no. the Torah reading this week reminds us that we cannot lose sight. You know, it's interesting because the, the, the president of Israel, uh, Bougie Herzog, so, so sh- during his, his, he was in the week of, sh- I think they postponed it. He was, he was in mourning for his mother. His, mo- his mother died just after, I think, he was inaugurated, or maybe, I don't know, something like that. But, but all of that is very, very important. We have, uh, it's interesting you say that uh, about the public private dy- dynamic, we also have the uh, normative for everybody dynamic that a holiday cancels Shiva because public joy is seen to supersede private suffering. And one is supposed to, I mean, of course, in reality, in person, you know, personal life, one, you know, people don't just set aside their, their grief and, uh, you know, have suckers, but, uh, but it is true that, that normative, normatively speaking, 
uh, public joy supersedes pri private suffering. But I wanted to say something else about the the what what is it that Moses has to convey to Aaron? We were talking before we started recording about the what I think is a kind of a disjunction between um, the the uh, the one-time tragedy disaster of Nadav and Avihu, which happens which happens once, um, and the you know number or Leviticus 16 here is this is what's supposed to happen all the time, every year, cyclically. Uh, this is a regular, regular event. Why introduce uh, one of the regular um, uh, rituals with a reference to an extraordinary event? And I was thinking about it, and and it occurs to me that perhaps, you know, what's being said is, you know, not only that Moshe says to Aaron, you know, we have to, we have to do this, um, we have to, you know, you, you have to come to your role. He has to say it in an achicha, your brother kind of way. But also, Moses is saying to Aaron that repair is actually possible. Okay, this was terrible. This was absolutely awful. It couldn't have been worse, you know, according to this way of reading it. Um, but it's not over. And in fact, we can put this back together. And in fact, in the, in the life of the people, on an every year basis, the, as the text says, that the Mishkan is shochenitam betoch tumotam. The Mishkan lives among the people in all their impurity. And there's perhaps a religious uh, impulse to say, oh man, we are, we're lost. We are, we're, we're, we're a mess. There's no way back from this, from this bad road. And instead, actually, kapara is possible. Kapara is a reality. Atonement's a reality. Chuva is a reality. And especially if you want to read, as I as I do when we talked about this in Parsha Shmini and we've talked about it in previous years, I want to read the, the deaths of Nadav and Avihu as really a kind of veiled response to Aaron and the golden calf. If if Moshe says to Aaron, um, or Aaron says to himself, perhaps, oh my goodness, my, my sons have just been killed in a spectacular way. This this golden calf thing, I'm never going to get away from it. I'm it's never going to leave me behind. I can never. Uh, um, move forward. Moshe says, okay, by the way, here's what we're going to do. Once a year, there is a ritual that is going to put, you know, all the broken stuff back together again. And that is just a, a huge, huge, huge importance for Am Yisrael. Anybody who's been through uh, Yom Kippur, as, as we all have many times, knows that uh, you, you just, if you do it with intensity, you come away feeling like you get a second chance to fix all those mistakes that you've that you've inflicted and so i think there's a, there's a powerful again like you said Ellie, i love this on a homiletical but it's almost shot like you feel, <laughs> if, you, if you get a if you get a homiletical reading that's so good you feel like it's almost shot it's yeah, yeah, yeah. simple meaning i feel like i feel like moses saying to aaron um this too can be put back together again i think is powerful so well, you know, what you suggest jeremy is that there's a difference between removal of impurity which is one theme that runs through chapter 16, and actual cleansing, which would be the positive step that we do, and that Yom Kippur functions in both ways. And what is intriguing to me is that the first Yom Kippur was after a national tragedy of the golden calf, which, which you mentioned, and the second Yom Kippur is coming after the deaths of Nadav and Avihu, and both times there's a... a poignance and a great dramatic moment because the people have to, um, in a sense, purge themselves, not just the Mishkan, 
in order to reconstitute their lives. And that's a challenge to us all the time, I think, and especially on Yom Kippur as we go through as we go through our lives. I think it's it's a remarkable thing. You know, we, 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 we talk about this around Yom Kippur, and here of course we're reading it in the cycle of the re, of the Torah readings that the idea that you would have this ability to to be cleansed or be renewed um, to to you know the 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 term is purgation that that in the sanctuary all of the impurity is purged out of it through the rituals that are done and all of the 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 sins are ridded it's it's what uh, Baruch Levine calls uh, a riddance ritual right these are rites of riddance. Uh, you know the the transference or the placing of the sins and, and onto the the uh, the scapegoat and having that scapegoat go into the wilderness. Uh, it's a, these are very very unusual rites, and of course the mission develops them in in ways that are really you know frame by frame almost. Um, and and it's it's quite unique. the The idea is that the as the the sanctuary you know functions during the year, these impurities accumulate, the sins accumulate. And at some point you have to you have to clean it up. I mean, we just finished Pesach here, you know, and I, I feel this way at Pesach when it, when I really do a deep cleaning. Sometimes it doesn't happen till after Pesach, um, but um, you know, there is the sense that you are purging stuff. Uh, you know, if you really get rid of every last bit of bit of chametz, it's a purge. And and you know, I don't have to go to to people who have experienced burglaries or traumas of of any kind of sort, but. The, the necessity to purge that residual feeling, I think it's very powerful. And, and it must have been very powerful in a, in a world in which the very existence of the people depended on the sense of God's proximity. And if God is proximate because the people are pure and do righteous things, and is pushed away when God, when the people do bad things and impurities accumulate, then, then it becomes of ultimate significance, and 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 so these purgation rituals, uh, I think, strike very deeply. There, there's a deep chord of our humanity in 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 the experiences that we have in life. Whenever we feel a sense of defilement, you know, you need to take a bath. Is what we're saying. <laughs> Some of us, bro. I don't know, but. Uh, and and of course in the, in you know there we, there we have a whole problem relating to to when this commandment or these rules are issued and and uh, where and how Yom Kippur takes place and and I suppose you know we could go into that but we're going to leave it and and move to um, another topic which is the the calendar which we are in we are in a very special period of time uh, and I I, I kind of wish that that this would take on more significance and get more currency within uh, Klal Yisrael, the notion of Aseret Yemei Toda, 10 Days of Gratitude. This, um, this initiative is being spearheaded by Bet Prat, you know this yeshiva, this is a secular yeshiva in Israel, Micha Goodman, philosopher, he's a writer, he's a public intellectual, and, and so you're hearing more about the days between Yom HaShoah. So this past Wednesday night, uh, we um, gathered and, and commemorated Yom HaShoah. Uh, the national con- commemoration of Yom HaShoah in Israel took place also Wednesday night. And, and uh, we're moving to that. Jeremy, we're just in Israel. Um, and uh, so, I, I, you know what? Just remind us. Take us, take us yeah. to the last couple of days and tell us about the emotional rhythm that's going on here. And, and, and if you can... Uh, 
you know, relate to us. Yomashua was was so intense um, in in Israel. Uh, you know, I, I listened listened to, watched on TV the uh, the Yad Vashem presentation. Um, listened a lot on the radio and the solemnity of the day. The the siren came as as all of our listeners probably know that uh, just like on Yom Hazikaron, Israel Memorial Day, on Yom HaShoah at 10 a.m. in the morning, there's a uh, there's a siren and everyone stands still. And I was in the airport when that when that happened. It was very, it was really powerful. Um, you know, there was lots of lots of material on the radio and people told stories. In, interestingly enough, in the course of uh, just a couple of days, I heard on the on the radio two reports about the uh, the Shoah in North Africa, because as as you know, the Nazis. Um, Nazis occupied northern France and Vichy France, uh, ostensibly an independent government, but really a Nazi puppet, controlled the French the French colonies in, in North Africa. So there's lots and lots of Jews under the Nazis. Uh, they didn't send them to extermination camps, but life was very, very hard. These are something I really didn't even know about. And one of the people who was interviewed uh, on on the radio, uh, you know, the, the announcer asked, why do you think this is coming now? And the person said, well, uh, you know, obviously, we've spent a great deal of time, um, uh, you know, focused on 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 what happened to European Jews. But uh, we're at a we're at a point where, like this, the the North Africans, they sort of felt embarrassed to be able to talk about their own suffering because it paled in comparison. Of course, there wasn't there wasn't uh, you know that 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 a ma- massive amount of death. But it was really hard on the people in Tunisia. And there was two two broadcasts I heard about the the Tunisian suffering under, under the Nazis and. Kobe O is a pop star who was from a Tunisian family. Wow. Made a song about, about the suffering of his family under the uh, under the um, under the Vichy government. And that was pretty intense. But the, the most important, the most intense thing was um, the uh, the TV. Uh, there were six survivors lighting six, you know, candles. Torches. Uh, I mean, not candles, they were like, you know. Torches, yeah, big torches. Big, big public torches. And and uh, six of them were there. They're, they're, of course, among the youngest survivors, and they're all into their 80s and 90s now. And the uh, and one of the six people, the son had to light because the father had died and just in the intervening, just, just a couple of uh, weeks before. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, the radio, they talked on the radio. I forget the number that they said, but they talked on the radio about, you know, just how many Shoah survivors are dying each year. And we can, of course, imagine we're going to get to the spot uh, when the last Shoah survivor, like the last Civil War veteran or the last World War One veteran or something like that, passes away, I had this feeling uh, on the day before, the afternoon going into Yom HaShoah, uh, as I was listening to one of those broadcasts, I was driving up to Jerusalem, and I just had this—you know—you talk about the sense of gratitude. You know, I've been in Israel a million times. It's it's hugely important to me. It's hugely meaningful to me. I love being in Israel. Uh, in 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 a sense, the greatest regret in my life is is having not made my life there. Um, and I just felt this enormous sense of of blessing that 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 could be true for me, that that is true of my life, that that being in Israel, being among Am Yisrael, and being at, at whatever distance, um, you know, a, a, a supportive partner uh, in the building of the Jewish people, the Jewish state. Uh, you know, I could have been born in, in 1930 in Poland. Then I could have been, 
you know, I could have been a child murdered by the Nazis. So many people were murdered by the Nazis. I just felt this enormous, like, well, you know, un unearned blessing that, that I have the modern state of Israel as part of my life. So um, th this is a, it's, it's a real topic of conversation for, for people who, who really take this quite seriously. I think those of us, you know, who live very close to the rhythms of Jewish life uh, are are deeply involved in this, and, and of course, you know, we, we have skin in the game. We're all, you know, we we have personal relationships, children, in my case, and 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 family, distant family, second, maybe third cousins, um, and 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 of course, some very very dear friends. And the sense of of what our connection is, and and how we are related to each other. And I think it's 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 extraordinarily complicated. I think you know, <laughs> sometimes I joke when I'm talking to Israelis that that. American Jews and Israelis need to have some family therapy, you know, and and to work through some of this relationship, uh, because there there are a lot of you know stated and unstated um, uh, things going on. But let's go back to to you know the rhythm of these days, and and you know we're all we're all um, you know connected to to the 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 narrative. The narrative of the Shoah defines us, and and so here. We are moving into a week uh, where Wednesday night, Wednesday, I'm sorry, uh, Tuesday night, Wednesday is Yom Hazikaron, and then um, uh, Thursday already is Yom Ha'atzma'ut. Uh, so I just want to interject here. Yeah. So this actually is, is a fascinating discussion because we have the intersection of history and religion. As we know, we're in the month of Nisan, which traditionally was a joyous month. It's not a month that we say traditionally the Tachnun, the penitential prayers. And yet, on the other hand, people know from their observance of Sefirah, we don't have weddings during Nisan as well because of historical circumstance or what was believed to be historical circumstance. Yom HaShoah this year and Yom HaTzma'ud are actually a day earlier than they're supposed to be on the Jewish calendar because the date that was chosen for Yom HaShoah is the 27th of Nisan. Yom HaTzmud is the fifth of ER. They're eight days apart on the calendar. But as the law developed in Israel, they cannot be observed on Friday. And so when the date of either one falls on Friday, and sometimes Yom HaTzmud could be on Saturday, they move it back to Thursday so that the observance of either day does not conflict with Shabbat, Shabbat observance. And I think it makes an important point for us that, you know, there are boundaries even to history, that exactitude is not necessarily a province of history. Sometimes we just come close. The other thing I wanted to add is that as it, there was a great discussion in Israel in the late 40s, early 50s, about how to observe Yom HaShoah. The traditionalist camp wanted to keep it on Tisha B'Av. There was a, actually an alternative date the 10th of Teve, which is perhaps the least observed fast day on the Jewish, traditional Jewish calendar. And they chose the 27th of Nisan, which was second to the date that many, certainly secular Jews wanted, which was the 16th of Nisan when the Warsaw Ghetto uprising um, er erupted, but that was also during Pesach. And that was not seemed to be appropriate. But what, So what we have today is Yom HaShoah, and then eight days later, Yom HaTzmaut, to make the point to me at least, that they belong to different times. They're a week apart. We have a full week between Yom HaShoah and Yom HaTzmaut because 
we're not supposed to make a theological connection between the two events, as tempting as it may be to do so. And it's and it, it is a, a kind of shiva. I mean, uh, you know, we we do shoehorn this, and this is, I guess, the accidents of the calendar that that put that fuse these moments together. And and then, of course, you know, as as you know, we we observe this annually. It, it you know, you hear Israelis say it couldn't be any other way. It couldn't. We could not have Yom Atzmut without Yom Hazikaron, and we could not have Yom Hazikaron without Yom Atzmut. You know, I've been in Israel. You know, we were there a couple of years ago um, uh, for in 2018 for the, the Yom Mut and um, the transition ceremony between Yom Hazikaron and Yom Mut is actually very striking. It's a, it is a liminal moment. It is you know one of these powerful moments where where one thing comes to a conclusion. A day where where everything that has been solemn, somber, filled with memorial, filled with reminiscence filled with the understanding of the of the 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 necessity of of sacrifice in order for the country to 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 exist and then of course you know that needs to go somewhere there you can't sustain that level of intensity and grief without some kind of celebration afterwards and and i think you know the these days do draw from uh the Jewish experience, they, they draw from a Jewish sensibility, Jude, Judaic Judaism, uh, which is you, you, you need to, me, 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 agon, liom, me, you know, liom tov, you know, me, me, eva, liom tov, me, agon, le simcha. We, 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 we understand that, that these are zones and that you, you need to make this transition into these zones. You can't live completely in the zone of grief and you can't live completely in the zone of joy. Of course, we would like to live our lives without zones of grief, but we know that these are necessities in our lives. And and this this week, more than any other week that that um, I know, both on, you know, in in the context of Jewish life, and I, I don't think there's any parallel to this anywhere. I mean, I, I can't think of an American parallel to. I certainly can't think of a Canadian parallel. The Remembrance Day in Canada is in November. The Independence, the the, the Confederation, the Canada Day is July first. America, July fourth is Independence Day. You know, Memorial Day is coming up in May. They're they're not connected, and I think I think in in countries where it's not connected, there's a price that's being paid. The narrative is the the it's the loss of narrative, the loss of connection. You know, we could use uh, a sense of of uh, dedication and narrative and and commemoration. I think everywhere. I mean, Israel can teach us certain things. Yes, because we, uh, you know, I, I don't venture a guess as to what uh, American Memorial Day was like. Um, you know, at, after the Civil War or 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 after you know World War One or Two, but now it's not. It's just. It, it's not. It's nothing. It's not connected to anything, unless you're. It's not meaningful. It doesn't have the have the mashmaut. Uh, in American life, you know, have been at the Vietnam Wall and seen the enormous power that that has. But that's a that's a place and it's a shrine. Uh, it's not a day. Yeah. It's not a day. So pilgrimage ritual. What I would suggest is that a, a fundamental difference between Israel and the United States and Canada as well is that Israel is a very small country in which a huge number of people have been in the military. Everyone in Israel knows someone who 
is remembered on Yom HaZikaron. That's not true in the United States. And especially, you know, I think about myself and about my father's generation. My father's generation, everyone who was of age went to war in World War II. And in my generation, no one I know personally went. I mean, some of my sister's friends went, ended up going to Vietnam, but in my specific generation, there was very little, if none, military experience. And even in our profession, the rabbinate, there are only a handful, I think maybe a few more to be yeah. accurate, who become military chaplains. So I went, um, go ahead, yeah. So that there has to be a different resonance between Israel and and the our Western countries because just because of the numbers. I think I think on, on the question of numbers, I was reading an article by a scholar in Ben Gurion University. His name is Jackie Feldman. He writes about these kinds of issues. And and one of the lines in that article was that Israel has the highest proportion of monuments, the ratio of monuments to deceased soldiers uh, is the highest of any country he knows of. It's the average is one to ten thousand. There's one monument for every ten thousand losses in Israel. It's one for every sixteen. In other words, you know this the notion of the personal you know distance between uh, loss bereavement you know connecting the parsha I guess to to commemoration is very very close. In, in Israel, and and I would say you know, and here we, we're 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 about to run out of time. But one of the ways that this is reflected in a, in, a, in geography, uh, this week is reflected by the proximity of Yad Vashem to Mount Herzl. The Yad Vashem, of course, is the national memorial to the Holocaust with the museum and and its various monuments. Uh, and of course, Mount Herzl, the burial place of Herzl, Theodor Herzl, founder of the Zionist movement, and all the leaders of the nation, and 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 most importantly, the all the soldiers. Some twenty-four thousand, uh, you know, they're not all buried at Mount Herzl, but but in that order of magnitude in terms of the numbers of of people who have uh, laid down their lives for Israel. It's twenty-four thousand and sixty-eight as of uh, this year. Um, there is a pathway between Yad Vashem and Har Herzl. The the um, it's called the connecting path, right? And um, it's a narrative path. And of course, it's intentional. Of course, it it says you know we we are connected in Jewish history. We're connected as a people. You know, we who are outside of Israel and are deeply connected and deeply involved, we share in the rhythm, and we don't share in the geography, obviously, because we don't live there. But we certainly resonate to it, and and we have not we don't have the the actual pilgrimage to these places, but we make a pilgrimage of of spirit and a pilgrimage of of heart. We bring our hearts to these things, and and these are the the, the greatest um, sources of pain for the Jewish world. But I think Jeremy, as you said, it's the it's the greatest source of pride that we have uh, Israel as a modern Jew today. Uh, I can't think of anything. That, that comes close to, to that as a source of pride and, and the necessity of Israel in our life uh, in an existential way that, that we, you know, we sometimes we take it for granted, but we couldn't live without it as Jews. I think it's, it so much defines us. I don't know. I, I feel like, I feel that the, you know, for all of Israel's problems and, and there are, and, you know, I especially feel that there's certain kinds of, of madness, um, you know, as a liberal Zionist, I feel that there are certain kinds of madness that religious Zionism 
uh, uh, sometimes manifests. I mean, when I was there and listening to the radio, I kid you not, they uh, they arrested uh, some people. They went to their houses and found that they had taken the goat and tied it up. The karehamita they had tied they had tied the the goat up to the bedposts in the yard and were intending to have korban pesach on the temple mount. Yeah, yeah. You can only imagine the the uh, explosiveness, the explosiveness that that would have entailed. Oh, dear God, thank heavens for the shin bed and their and their pain. They, they figured out. But that's not normative. You know, those are the you know. Look, they're, we, they're they're fringe, but they're not they're, they're they're fringe, but there's not one or two of them anyway. But my my point is that what I, what I do want to say, especially in the wake of Yom Hashoah and and looking towards Yom Hazikaron and, and Yom Atzmaut, is that this is a that this is a country with a strong sense of of destiny, of yeah. dealing with the past and committing to the future. And I think the United States, with all the wonderful things, and, and I, I really don't know if this applies to Canada, but I'm gonna guess I'm gonna guess it does. Is that even in the in the you know, directed sense of the United States aspires to this or that and, and liberty and justice for all. And, and those things are important. We don't have that sense of national project that people devote their lives to in the way that people serve in Israel. And, and I still think there's lots of folks who, who do have that. And I do think the national service, uh, military service is declining a little bit, but still it, it's, it's still a huge part of life. And I, and I feel that the, that the Shoah into the, the, Tikuma from the from the devastation till the till the building and, and upholding remains a narrative in this country in that country in a, in an extraordinarily positive way. I don't know that the Jewish people, if they didn't have this opportunity to building, I, I don't think they would have survived. I don't think we would have survived the show. I think so. So I would have won if we did not have this opportunity. To exactly. Uh, so we might give then the last word to the Baal Shem Tov, one of the great figures of Jewish history, whose words are. Um, near the end of Yad Vashem, which is that forgetfulness leads to exile, memory leads to redemption. redemption. And the season that we're in is one where we blend our personal memory with the national memory. And that, I think, is where redemption takes place. Beautiful, beautiful. For God has redeemed Jacob and redeemed from one too strong for him. Okay, so with that, we we are praying for everyone and um, our brothers and sisters throughout the world. We are praying for Medinat Yisrael. May God bless Medinat Yisrael. And we all hope to enjoy a beautiful Shabbat. I know that this is coming late into your inboxes and online but we look forward to seeing you again on a future edition of Parsha Talk Shabbat Shalom Shabbat Shalom